Uh, first reading is from Matthew chapter 5, which is on page 968. And then we go back to the previous page, 967, to read from Matthew chapter 4. So, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now back to chapter 4. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, 
and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Um, If that sounded slightly convoluted, going backwards through Matthew's Gospel this morning, but um, we will be, each week, we will read through the whole of the Beatitudes from Matthew 5, and then there'll be another passage that will run alongside that. And uh, this is all part of the new term and the new preaching series. It's one which Simon, our new vicar, has been very much involved in putting together for us and working with us on. And... He's also done some briefing notes for all of us who are are preaching and leading and who are going to be leading sung worship and also for small group leaders as well. Um, So and I haven't quite sat down yet to work out whether we do individual notes each week or or leave the groups to to work their way through. That will come during this month. But as part of his introduction for us, um, as Simon points us towards the Beatitudes, that opening of Matthew 5, He asks this question, how can these amazing Beatitudes become part of who we are corporately as a church and who I am individually as an individual disciple? How can these amazing Beatitudes become part of who we are and who I am? Now, if you aren't a disciple of Jesus, the Beatitudes may sound very, very strange if they're describing what it means to have a really fulfilled and a blessed life. Who wants to be poor in spirit? Our culture says, I'm going to be number one and nothing's going to get in my way. I'm not going to be poor in anything. Who wants to mourn or or be meek or to to hunger and thirst? Who wants to to show mercy? Who wants to be pure in heart or, or a peacemaker and certainly not persecuted? They're all against our culture, aren't they? I think it's significant that uh, in the the, the message of the Bible series, um, it's now published the message on the Sermon on the Mount, but when John Stott first wrote that book, the title was Christian Counterculture. Because the Beatitudes run against that, as does most of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Because even as disciples, we may have doubts about following such a way of life. We'd rather something that was much simpler, something that was far more comfortable than the Beatitudes hold out for us. We'd much rather go after somewhere else than someone else, perhaps. And I think one of the reasons for feeling an uneasiness when we come to the Beatitudes cold is that we forget where God calls our first allegiance to be. And that's right at the heart of these temptations in Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus is tempted there, the temptations he faces, and we'll look at them a bit in in, individuals in a minute, they're more about who we are as people, more about who we are in our character, more about who we are in our allegiance than they are about specific ticklers about what we do and don't do. Do we try and take shortcuts? Do we just look after number one? Do we want to worship something other than God because we think that will give us a better life than what God's giving us? All over the place, aren't we, at times, sometimes. But one of the other important bits about this particular passage from Matthew 4 is that alongside showing us some of the core temptations that we face as disciples, is it also shows us a Jesus way of fighting against the temptations when they come. 
It does two things for us. Yes, that the, the temptations here are very unique to who Jesus is and was, and at this particular point in his life. But there are also temptations that face all of us. But the way Jesus handles them also teaches us too. One final comment by way of introduction into the whole of, of Matthew 4 and 5 is that Matthew, at the start of his gospel, frames the story in the context of the Exodus story. And this will actually bring some of the passage, I hope, a bit more to life as well. Because Matthew starts with Jesus being in Egypt, just as the ancient Israelites were. In Matthew chapter 2, they flee from Herod and they end up in Egypt. The ancient people were then brought through the Red Sea. And Christians through the ages have seen that as a symbolism of Christian baptism. And so the then, at the start of Matthew chapter 4, what happened immediately before that was Jesus' baptism. And then after they crossed the Red Sea, the people were brought out into the wilderness and they were tempted and tested. And so for Jesus as well, Matthew frames this in the same way, that he is led from his baptism into the wilderness to be tempted. So you see the sort of pattern that's there. And if we were to continue to read through the Old Testament, we then have the book of Deuteronomy that gets written um, towards the end of their testing, which is partly reflecting on it, but also giving them instructions for what it means to live the life of a nation dedicated to God. Deuteronomy is a brilliant book. It covers not only our, our personal way of living, but it covers ethics, it covers our politics, it covers our, our, way, our approaches to um, the created order and everything else. It's all there in Deuteronomy. And so we see the same parallel to a certain extent here as Jesus moves on from this time of testing into the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and saying, what does it look like to live a life which is given over totally to God? And that's where the blessedness comes in, in Matthew chapter 5. Now, obviously, the parallel does break down in, in that the ancient people, as they walked through the wilderness and were tested, um, didn't, didn't succeed against the temptations. They succumbed to them, whereas Jesus comes through with flying colors at the end of it. Enough by way of introduction, let's pray and then let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus was tested in every way just as we are, but without sin. Thank you that in his victorious life, we too can know victory. Thank you that in his victorious life, we can know redemption and eternal life in you. Thank you that through his rising again and through his ascension, the Spirit could be sent to indwell us, to shape us, and to help us, to live for you. So, Lord, as we begin this series, we pray that we may know the blessedness that comes from you, but be willing to, to live that out with all the costliness it involves, that we might bring glory to the Lord Jesus. Amen. I suspect that we've all been there. We've gone away to a Christian conference for a week, or we've gone away on a church weekend away, whatever it might be, something like that. And it's been fantastic. The teaching has been great. We've really lapped up all that the speakers have had to say. We've enjoyed the fellowship with our brothers and sister Christians everywhere that we are. 
We've enjoyed the sun worship. Heaven's come to earth. It's been fantastic. And then Monday morning comes. And we go back into the normal everyday that we're doing. Maybe back into the place we work. And who's one of the first people we meet? It's the person who always rubs us up the wrong way. And immediately we react. And it's as if everything that's gone on over the weekend hadn't been there. And we snap back at them. Maybe that's just me, but I've seen nods around just then and others of you have been in the same situation as well. Because it seems so often that when we've gone through the high point spiritually, it's immediately that's happened that we get tempted to, to turn away and to do things which aren't honoring to God. Jesus has just had a high point. Heaven had literally just come down to earth in his baptism as the dove, in the, uh, symbolizing the spirit, came down from heaven and, and there was that voice from heaven saying to him, you are my son, with you, with you I am well pleased. And yet Jesus immediately from that goes into the desert to a time of temptation. It's always one of the great prayers we have after things like the download week away is we pray for the youngsters on the Monday morning that everything that's gone on for them the previous week, that God will keep them firm to what they promised the previous day. Even when they get back into college and face all the problems that are going to arrive there. So that's one point where temptation really does begin to hit us is when we've been on a spiritual high. But the same happens when we're on the low, on the low side as well. When we're tired, when we're hungry maybe, or whatever it might, might, might be. And for Jesus here, he spent 40 days fasting. I sympathize with what Sue said at the start of the service on that one because I know what I'm like after a day of fasting. I'm sort of longing for something that's a bit more substantial than just the water I've been drinking or whatever it might be. And Jesus for 40 days has, has fasted. He's weak. Matthew maybe unnecessarily just simply writes in he was hungry. Wouldn't we all be after that period of time? Jesus is at a low point physically and temptation comes. And that's the same for us, it's going to be the same for us too. If we were to go back and read Exodus, we would find the three areas of the temptation that Jesus faces here are part of that wilderness wanderings. The people were hungry. They'd been in the desert, they couldn't really have much food. And they were really upset with God about it. And they demanded that God do something. Even as going as far as saying to Moses, Moses, take us back into Egypt. It was great there when we were slaves because we had banquets every night. Not so, obviously. In his mercy, God gives them manna to eat. A bit later on, they come to an asus, uh, Rephidim. The only problem was it was an oasis without any water. And again, they get on it at God and say, God, this is not right. We want you to give us water. Give it to us now. Again, God speaks to them powerfully and says, hang on a minute, that isn't the way this works. I'm the one who gives the orders, not you. But in his mercy, God does provide water from the rock. But that place... Masa Ameribah becomes a byword in the Old Testament for what happens when people start to try and test God. 
as you brought up on Anglican prayer book, we know Psalm 95 to the 90, and those verses which often are omitted in, service, in, in services today talk about, Lord, do not bring us to that time where we put you to the test. And then later still, as Moses seems to have gone missing on Sinai, as he goes to get the book of the law, what happens? The people start grumbling again. Well, who is this Moses? He's vanished. He doesn't worry about us. God obviously doesn't care for us. Who was it really who brought us out of Egypt? And remember Aaron then constructs the golden calf, and he says, that's the God who brought you out of Egypt. This is the God we're going to worship from now on because this God is dependable. And you see the parallels that are going on with the temptations that Jesus faced. I think for all of us, we find ourselves tempted in similar ways to Jesus. The temptation for material wants, the temptation for it to be all about me, the temptation of putting God to the test, of believing that we're the ones who give the orders. The temptation to say we're going to pursue this, that, and the other because that's what will really give us satisfaction rather than our full-hearted allegiance to God. But I say the same way, I think, the way in which Jesus deals with those temptations also gives us an example to follow. So let's go to those temptations very briefly. I think the first of them is to use our relationship with God to restrict God's purposes. To restrict those purposes to it being all about what God's going to do for me. Jesus is hungry, there's no doubt about that. After 40 days fasting, all of us would be. And it's almost as if the tempter says, go on, you're hungry. You can make these stones turn into bread. Look after number one. Don't worry about what God's called you to in terms of self-sacrifice. Look after yourself. Don't worry about others. But Jesus has been called, as he calls us, to live that life of self-sacrifice. It's a life which will be lived out as the suffering servant one in which he's going to be persecuted, one in which hunger and thirst will happen. And if we're honest, Jesus calls us to that way of life too. It's not always going to be comfortable. It's not always going to be easy because we're following in the footsteps of a suffering servant who calls us to take up our cross daily. So how does Jesus deal with that? He quotes from Deuteronomy, it is written, gegraptai, three times against each of the three, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Go back to Deuteronomy, read it there, and it's tied in totally with the story of the giving of manna in the desert. Matthew's drawing that, that parallel right the way through. The manna is a sign of God's provision. And the writer of Deuteronomy, the editors in what we now have, are clear about that. But they say that the giving of the manna was to teach you 
that people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that God speaks. Yes, God is interested in our material needs. It's not by bread alone. But also there's the rest that God wants to be pouring out on us and giving to us. And those words of God will drive us to look beyond ourselves, to be looking at the needs of others too, and how, how will he use us to meet those other needs. What about the second of the temptations? to put God on trial, to test him. It's almost as the tempters that, aha, he's got me with one verse of scripture, I'm going to get him with another one. But he just quotes a very small part of Psalm 91. He says, go and just throw yourself off the top of the temple here, because remember, this is the promise. His angels will take care of you. But actually, that's a partial quote from Psalm 91. Go back and look at the full context of it, and it begins and says... Take refuge in God. Let him be the source of who you are and all that you're doing. And then the angels will take care of you as a result of that. Not just putting God to the test. Not saying, God, I want you to jump through my hoops. Not saying, God, you are my servant. But rather letting dwelling in God and letting him lead and guide us. Jesus again goes to Deuteronomy. And the verse that he quotes is tied in the text in Deuteronomy with the ancient people being at Rephidim, that oasis with no water, when the people put God to the test. Again, that trusting in God will always take, won't always take us to those comfortable places. But as we've already sung this morning, he is a faithful God, a God who will always be with us, a God who will always be there alongside us, whatever it is that he leads us through. And then for the third of the temptation is to give up on worshipping God and seek out something else to worship instead. The words that Matthew uses here are quite, quite interesting because if you go back to Matthew 2 and the Magi, they come, don't they, with their, their gifts to, to, to the infant Jesus. And what do we read? We, we read that they bow down and worshipped him. And exactly the same words are used here. When Satan says to Jesus, I want you to bow down and worship me, it's exactly the same words that, he, that, that are used. And Satan's saying, look, you don't need to worry about going through all of this self-sacrifice business. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the nations of the world. It's a temptation to a shortcut to power, to rule. But it's not what Jesus was here for. He would rule all the nations. He does rule all the nations. But it's through the cross and resurrection that that comes not by chasing after something and someone that isn't God. One writer puts it this way, whenever we bow down to that which is not God, to nation or race or family or social standing, hoping that this will fill our hearts, we succumb to this temptation. And I guess we could put a whole lot of other things in that what we might seek. 
And yet again here, Jesus goes back to Deuteronomy. It's a call to worship God alone. Nothing is to get in the way of that. The result may be suffering and persecution. But it is only in that way of our total allegiance to God that we will become blessed. And all of those things and the Beatitudes will follow as we dedicate our lives to walking wherever God calls us to. Each of those temptations is an invitation for Jesus to take a shortcut, to abandon costly obedience, if you like, to have gain without pain. Now, don't get me wrong. There are t- it's great being a Christian. It really is. Because we, we benefit so much from all that God has done for us. But in following closely like that and experiencing his blessedness that we read of in Matthew 5, we will also go through those paths of difficulty. We're called to walk the way of humility, of service, the way of suffering. But we do that knowing that it is because our allegiance is to the God who made us, the God who cares for us, the God who has redeemed us, and the God who ultimately will bring us safe to shore. And in walking that way, we will be blessed in the way in which the Beatitudes describe it. But Jesus also, as we've already seen, overcomes each of those temptations by resorting to Scripture. It is written. The temptations are slanders against God usually, or they're deceptions, like the partial quoting of Psalm 91, or a sowing doubt. Think of those in the garden right at the start. Did God really say that? No, you can't really believe that, can you? Go on, do it. It won't matter. We're called to wholehearted obedience. Jesus clings to God's word. Many commentators believe that somewhere or other Jesus was meditating during those 40 days on the book of Deuteronomy. Maybe that's just the part that came to him as the temptations came. But it is a challenge to us, isn't it? How well do we know the scriptures? How much are the scriptures shaping and forming us? I don't mean by that that we can pass Bible quizzes which says, please quote me Isaiah 42.1. Some of you will probably do that straight away now as I say the verse. But rather that our lives are shaped and framed indelibly by Scripture as the Spirit comes to us and guides us through as what we read and begins to form us as disciples with our allegiance to Christ. I love Eugene Peterson's comments in in, in this area. And it takes us wider than just proof texting. We don't want to live, he writes, in a small world that has Bible verses posted on it for validation. We want to live out the whole of Revelation, 
so living out of it that even if we lack citations for specific situations or questions, we know that we are still living biblically. So not just looking for proof text, so we use that in this situation, we use that in this situation, but being shaped and framed by the Scriptures so that we know whatever it is that we face, we are living biblically. He goes on to write, we find a home and country within the Scriptures and we are shaped by them. When we do this, when we allow every word that comes from the mouth of God to shape us, I think that's when we can rightly use the sword of the Spirit that Paul writes about in Ephesians 6. Because when we do that, we will stand, as Paul indicates. So, a reality check. How much time do you spend each day in reading the Scriptures? How much time do you spend each day maybe using social media, reading novels, watching television, whatever it might be? How does that compare with the time you spend reading scriptures? I still love the words of a, of a former curate here many, from many years back who when asked the question by somebody, how long should I spend reading my Bible each day? Simply responded, a little longer than you do at the moment. <laughs> Where are we in being shaped by scripture. If you struggle with that and want some help, do come and, and speak to George or so or me afterwards. We're delighted to point you in some direction of things to help you. When we read the Beatitudes cold, they strike us as quite strange and unnerving. But if we follow what Jesus demonstrates here in Matthew chapter 4, in terms of our total allegiance to God, they begin to make sense because they will naturally flow out of our obedient walk. And we do that not by narrowing things down for our personal advantage, not by testing God and making him our servant, not by seeking other gods who we think will satisfy us better or give us an easier life, but willing to wholeheartedly just follow where he leads. And that will be shaped as we read the scriptures together. And when we do that, we will begin to find that the blessedness that's described in the Beatitudes becomes a lived reality in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the faithful God, the God who comes alongside us, the God who listens to us and hears us. Thank you that you are the God who picks us up when we fall down, who dusts us off and turns us round. Help us to be shaped and framed by your word, that we might live for you even when we have no proof text for what that might look like. Help us to know your blessing on our lives, even when that feels uncomfortable, even when it feels there's an easier path we could walk. 
but lead us in your paths, Lord. Because it's only when we follow you that we will know true peace in our lives. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Take us and use us as individuals and as your church here in this place to know the blessedness of the Beatitudes in our lives, to be so transformed that our allegiance will be solely to you. For your glory we pray it. Amen.